um, need to share something as we get going. Um, I just all week long have been um, grateful for you, and um, though I don't feel like I need to say it, I want to. I just I don't care if you're here for the first time or or you've been here since we planted this church five years ago. I just I have a deep love for you, and I mean that. And I hope you don't hear that tritely or cliche, but. I love that you're here. I love that um, that you are okay being open and vulnerable and authentic. And I pray that you feel like you don't have to wear a mask or a face here. I'm a punk sinner in desperate need of God's grace. And so because of that, I can stand before you and I don't have to wear a mask and try to act holier than I am. But I, as one of the pastors here, can say, I need Jesus. And I can also say that I love you, but I love Jesus more. And so because of that, tonight as we teach through the text, uh, if you've been here before, you know that we will teach uh, the scriptures without apology. But because we believe that serving Christ is better than serving man. And so I, I must, in obedience, teach the scriptures tonight. And, and that will mean certain things, uh, particularly on the subject matter of this evening. And uh, it's an interesting topic for us. It'll come at an interesting time for us. But I pray that no matter how you entered this room, that we can take a journey through the text in a way where you feel like you can be exactly who you are right now in the hopes and prayer that God will do something in us. No matter whether you walked in here believing firmly in the fact that Jesus is real, Savior, and King seated on a throne, or whether tonight you're wrestling with all of that. Amen? So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. I have a lot on my heart tonight, guys, and so excited to be here, excited to pastor you and shepherd you, and, and seriously, it's, it's a, I consider it a humbling honor uh, to do all of those things. If you're just joining us, we're studying through the book of Daniel. It's an Old Testament prophet. We study through the scriptures uh, word for word uh, in order. Uh, not necessarily through the Bible, that would take us uh, well beyond my lifespan. But we do so so we don't have to pass over hard texts like this evening. All right, So we need to jump in here to verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 5 to begin to give us some context. And we'll start working through. When you're there, say, I'm there. Wonderful. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of of the thousand. Well, um, this poses already some interesting questions. Who is Belshazzar? Not to be confused with Belteshazzar, right? Belteshazzar is the Babylonian name for Daniel. All right, so the first time I read over this, I read it quickly, and I thought here that we're talking about Daniel. We're not. We're talking about someone else, someone named Belshazzar. So to understand who Belshazzar is, we have to understand the lineage since Nebuchadnezzar. So far through our study of Daniel, we've been learning about the great Babylonian empire and its king, its ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. He rules for a long time, and soon after he dies, which is where we left off last week, the empire begins to crumble. So I want to show you the kings. First, Nebuchadnezzar ruled from 605 to 562. Next, his son, appropriately named Amel Marduk, rules for two years. Now, uh, I've told you before that oftentimes in Babylon they would bear names of their gods. And we've talked previously here about the Babylonian god Marduk. He's the chief god. The creation story comes through Marduk. 
And uh, thankfully for Amel Marduk, his uh, brother-in-law assassinates him. And his brother-in-law's name, it looks like a uh, cough syrup that you get at Walgreens, uh, Nerigliser. He rules for four years. Um, now, he rules for four years, and interestingly enough, he dies of natural causes. After him, the next in line is uh, what's estimated to be between a 7- and 12-year-old boy, who unfortunately, I'm sure, was made fun of a lot as a, a young lad because his name was, was Labashi Marduk, right? Call one of your friends that. Uh, well, they, they, there was no love loss in Babylon. He's between 7 and 12 years old, and still some uh, conspirators beat him to death. And one of those uh, conspirators is this next guy, and his name is Nabonidus. And uh, Nabonidus is an interesting character uh, because he rules probably uh, the second greatest rule in the whole Babylonian Empire for 17 years. But it's interesting to note about him that um, he doesn't believe in the deity system of Babylon. And so what he does is he moves, some say 50 miles south of the city of Babylon, and he appoints in his stead... To rule the city of Babylon, our friend Belshazzar. All right, so his father is, is this guy. His son is Belshazzar. His father's 50 miles south. Belshazzar takes rule over Babylon, the city of Babylon, and that's where our story picks up. So, where we started, uh, Daniel, was in 605 BC. Do you see now that we are in 539? Which means what? This is the last year of the Babylonian Empire. In chapter 5, the Babylonian Empire falls, and you're getting ready to witness the literal fall, proven historically and matched prophetically by Daniel, the fall of an empire. So again in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. How many of you have ever planned a wedding before? Okay. All right. Justin planned his wedding for Angela. It's good to hear. Most of the rest of you were females. You know how much stress it is to plan meals for 250. See what I'm saying? How about trying to plan a meal for 1,000, okay? Uh, Archaeological digs about 50 years ago found the probable room that this took place. Massive room. The king sat at the front, plaster walls all around, and it was extremely long. Some say 185 feet long. And in this room, this party ensues. 1,000 people. Imagine the food. And the scripture says that they're not just eating, but that they're drinking, Drinking something in particular, that they're drinking wine. Now the story gets much more interesting, trust me, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, uh, this is a clear reference to his, to his drunken state, okay? The Aramaic here implies that he has not just tasted the wine, but he has in fact tasted and loved and tasted some more, all right? Belshazzar in this party, and historians will say that this was not just a drunken a party, but rather this is... Um, This is a pleasurable orgy of sorts. This becomes a massive perverted party that begins with wine. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, look at this, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king of his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Bad move, Belshazzar. So here's what he does. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar, when he came to uh, Jerusalem in 605, goes into the temple of the Jewish God, our God, the Hebraic God, and he takes vessels out of the temple. You remember that our whole story started that, verse 2, I believe, of chapter 1. 
Now to do that, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to prove that if he can go in as the king of Babylon, take the vessels out of the temple and bring them back to Babylon, it proves that he's more powerful than the Hebraic God. You guys see? But um, this guy, Belshazzar, ups the ante a little bit. Apparently these vessels have a reputation. So he not only desires to, to get a hold of these vessels, he desires to actually pour wine in these vessels and at this party use these as the, the vessels of, in this case, pleasure. He knows nothing and learns nothing of his past. Though Nebuchadnezzar ended our, our chapter 4 by saying, anyone who walks in pride, God is able to humble. Belshazzar hasn't learned from what the scripture calls his father. He's not his literal father. Oftentimes in ancient Mesopotamia, someone who was considered a father was considered a person of authority, in this case a grandfather. So he goes, bring the vessels of wine, bring them here, and we're going to use them in our party, in verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and not just did they drink wine from them, but as they're holding them in their hands, they praised the God's lowercase of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I can understand a pagan praising the God of gold, cannot understand a, a pagan praising the God of wood. Anyone else? You see what I'm saying here. Like, they're so drunk that they're praising the God of wood. At this point, they become a lumberjack, and we don't even understand what's happening, right? This is a crazy scene. This is what people call blasphemy. Now, it's even blasphemous for a pagan, an unbelieving man, to take the vessels out of the temple of God, to pour that wine in them, to hold those wine, to hold that cup filled with wine in their hands, and as they're holding them in their hands, begin to praise the God of gold and all the things listed here. That is, my friends, what is called blasphemous. Now, the story unfolds in a powerful way. And before we move on or do anything else, we need to have a dialogue on what's happened here in Belshazzar's heart. And it begins with the topic of alcohol. Um, now, I say the word, and it instantly puts many of you at unease. And here's why. We all come here with varying perspectives when I say the word alcohol. Some of you have never drank in your life. It's not an issue for you. Others of you, you grew up with alcoholic parents. And so just to begin to speak about alcohol instantly puts you on your heels, brings up pain and possible shame. And then the other reality is, is some of you in here have literally been drunk on wine in the last week. So we all come here with varying perspectives. And I desire to show you the heart of Belshazzar here and teach through the biblical approach to alcohol, which Belshazzar clearly doesn't take. But I want to do that and point two things out. First of all, if you're not a believer here, if you're here just checking it out, welcome again. It's amazing to have you. But I want to tell you that this teaching, as we're about to dive into some biblical connotations to alcohol and wine and drunkenness, this isn't for you. The church in the past has tried to made it, make it about you. And what they've done is they cre they've created a whole unbelieving culture that is upset at the church because the church has tried to change behavior without the person of Christ sitting at the head of that. You see what I'm saying? So I say that this teaching isn't for you because your issue isn't that you need to stop drinking apart from Christ. 
In fact, I would say this. You have no motivation outside of simple uh, American cultural morality to not drink and get drunk. It's the same way with premarital sex or whatever it is. I'm not here, if you're an unbeliever, to change your behavior without focus on the person of Christ. What I am here to point you to is the person, nature, and work of Jesus. It's through him that behavior and life changes and freedom is seen. Power is experienced and releasing of your shame, regret, and remorse goes. It's through the power of the cross that all of that crumbles. You see what I'm saying? So if you're an unbeliever here, I want to I encourage you. Though you may be uh, at, at times uh, encouraged through this uh, quick discussion of alcohol, this isn't primarily for you because my motive and goal is not to change your behavior without turning and focusing you on Jesus. We come to Jesus and because who he is, he changes our behavior. We don't become acceptable in the eyes of Christ by stopping to drink. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, to the believer. I approach this subject which, with tremendous grace and love for you. With the recognition that for our particular age group and demographic here, that this is a huge issue. And as we start to dive into this, I want to tell you what I'm going to steer clear of. Two things. I'm going to steer clear of legalism. When you begin to introduce the, the topic of alcohol in the church, many jump to legalism. Okay? They just, we, if you drink, you're not a Christian. If you drink, you're not saved. None of those things are biblical. We'll talk about what is here in a second. There's another group that, drunk, uh, that, that jumps to loose, um, to loose liberty. Okay? So they're, they're not legalists. On the other side, they're loose liberty. They're like, well, the Bible doesn't say anything against drinking, and so, you know what we'll do? We'll toe the line. And many of you find yourself in one of those two categories. I'm going to steer clear of both of those and help show us what's happening in the heart of Belshazzar that as a Christian, you should never be associated with, but the reality is some of you in here are. Are you with me? Now, amidst this discussion, I've been asking myself a question. Why do people drink? And so I, I'll answer that. First, I think uh, for personal reasons, drinking alone. So for some of you, you drink because you enjoy the taste of wine, and alcohol, or beer, or whatever. And you enjoy that in the confines of your, of your own existence. Maybe it's with your wife or your husband. You guys cook some spaghetti or some lasagna. I don't even know, right? And you grab the wine bottle and you pour it and it turns into a romantic evening. You know, whatever that looks like. So people drink for personal reasons when they're alone. Secondly, uh, people drink for social reasons. In other words, when they drink with people. So some of you who drink, uh, you participate in alcohol like we see here in Belshazzar. And it's, it's like a social event. It's built around relationships. In fact, it's relationships that encourage uh, the drinking. The third reason why I think people drink is uh, primarily cultural. In other words, you began drinking or continue to drink because you look at others in your cultural context who are drinking and then it, for lack of a better term, pressures you to follow suit. Now, none of these three, if you drink personally or because of social or cultural reasons, None of these three are inherently sinful, you see. None of these three are inherently sinful. The Bible is clear, very crystal clear, about one thing. Ephesians, put this up for me. Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 5 uh, tells us this. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I can't go through all the litany of scriptures that speak and preach against uh, getting drunk in the scripture, but we can stake our claim in the scripture. It's clear. 
Do not get drunk on wine. All right, put my last slide up. Reasons why we drink. So here's what happens. Some of you who begin drinking personally, for personal reasons with your wife and your husband, what begins, listen, not as legalism or not as loose liberty, what begins as freedom in Christ, and I'll explain what that means here in a second, what begins as freedom of Christ begins to get lackadaisical and move to loose liberty. And pretty soon you find yourself drinking alone with your wife or your husband or by yourself, pressing the envelope, towing the line, finding yourself not just drinking but beginning to drink to get drunk and you do it alone so that no one can see, that no one can tell. You do it personally. No one knows. I'm, I'm perfectly safe. I'm not drinking and driving so at least that's good. And you find yourself alone in your room with your wife, incapacitated. And you're justifying it all the way along because it's just you. Now many of you find yourselves in this pit in depression, huh? Some of you have gotten to a place of such depression and despair that this is where you find yourself. Alone, drinking, succumbing. Now for some of you socially, if you're of age, again I, I point this out, of age, under the biblical standards, right? And you begin socially drinking in freedom in Christ, soon that moves potentially to loose liberty. Again, none of these things are inherently sinful, but they can easily become sinful. So it starts out as social drinking, as we see here kind of in the case, right, of Belshazzar, soon moves to loose liberty, right? And the social event that started out maybe even as a believer of freedom in Christ soon becomes just this massive party where you find yourself giving up all kinds of things that you said one day that you would never do. But it's easier in the social context because there are others that are doing it, participating in it. In fact, not just others, but other Christians. And this is where we do ourselves no good. Where other Christians are placing themselves in harm's way and then encouraging this blasphemous behavior, which I'll get to here in a second, because it's shared with others, you see. Culturally. What starts out as freedom in Christ, look, there's cultural relevance and me participating and maybe even building relationships for the sake of the gospel soon moves to loose liberty and you find yourself looking around at culture and pointing the finger back at you and say, if I don't succumb, then I'm culturally irrelevant. It's there that things become a sin issue. It's there that all of these things find themselves from freedom in Christ to loose liberty. Now, a huge point of contention in this whole teaching is understanding this. I know that there has been so much pain, sexual acts, things that you've communicated with a loose tongue that could have been averted if you as a believer would not have found yourself towing this line and at times rolling over it. There are many believers in this room, and I say all this with as much grace and love and respect as I can, that have found yourself in continually, especially females, compromising sexual situations because of your inability to follow the commands of the scriptures. And you've battled it by either legalism or loose, right? 
instead of just celebrating the freedom of Christ. Now, I say all this to say, what does this mean then? What do we do? Mark, if you're saying we're not to get legalistic, and the legalistic way would be for me to stand up here, and this is what the church has often done. All right, here's the thing. We're going to put a, a, a big rule over there on the side. A ton of, ton of you are struggling with alcohol. So here, here's our new stance at Matthias. No one drinks, right? No one drinks here. We're wearing the t-shirts. We're getting, you know, and no one drinks bracelets with a little, you know, pitcher of alcohol. with a Like, that's what we're going to do here, right? We're going to come, and it's going to become a chant. Brandon's going to write a song that says, we don't drink at Matthias. You know, whatever it is. That's what we're going to do. And often that's what the church has done. And you know what it's done? Is it's turned rightfully people away from the church because they're still reading their Bible saying, the Bible doesn't say that. So legalism, we cannot do. We can't come in and say, no more alcohol. Can't do it. Not biblical. Nor can we preach loose liberty. Nor can we say, you know what? We're going to combat legalism and we're just going to take this you know, don't get drunk, we're, you know, we're just, we're going to toe that line as we can't do that either. And many Christians, even Christians that run in the circle that I run in, find themselves in this loose liberty. I can, I can go to the bar and pretty soon one becomes three and three becomes six and six becomes I can't drive. So what do we do? Listen, freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. Let me explain. There is this amazing passage that has just been burdening my heart, not just on the alcohol issue, but it's the question, listen, what Belshazzar does is he lifts the cup, and you know what he does? He says, with this cup, I worship the God of gold, bronze, and silver. What freedom in Christ is, not just on the alcohol issue, but on every other issue, put up this Colossians passage for me, is this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What this means is everything we do is worship. Belshazzar lifts his cup and worships the God of gold, silver. Anytime you drink and you're of legal age as a Christian, it better be worship. You're like, well, well Mark, how can it be worship? That's what you need to discern. I believe it can be in the right context, in the right mental frame. It works the same with watching TV, with anything that we do in our life. It must come back to worship. Raising the cup filled with a drink of alcohol. If you cannot drink and worship, then we don't drink. It's as simple as that. And that is not legalism. That is not loose liberty. That's freedom in Christ. Because of Christ, I now can worship God. You see the difference? Before, I couldn't worship God. I couldn't approach God. I couldn't talk to God. I couldn't pray to God. But now through Christ, I can worship Him. So when I drink, I worship. When I eat, I worship. When I watch TV, when I hold the game controller. Mark, come on now. Don't, don't go halo on us here. You know, certainly, certainly we can. But you know the conversation I've been having with my friends? We, we dialogue like this, but come on, but I need some downtime. Have you ever said that line before? We'll use that same thing for alcohol. We'll definitely use it with TV, but I need some downtime. I need some downtime, right? Okay, but that downtime better be worship. Instead of just, for example, watching TV, 
I watch a TV show that my wife and I can enjoy together, and we cuddle, and we dialogue. It's not just each of us vegging out because we've had a long day. It's purposeful. It's intentional. Are you with me? Now, one more thing on this note, and then we'll move forward, kind of. Um, Belshazzar lifts his cup, blasphemes God, and completely goes against and goes toe-to-toe with God. Listen, how different is it when you, as a proclaimed follower of Jesus, take your liberty and look at that liberty in the eye and hold up the cup and say, I won't worship you, I'll worship me. And so I'll indulge, I'll engulf, I'll make it about how different is that blasphemy? Why is it not blasphemous? Aren't you and I, not just on the alcohol issue, but you name it, the same at times as Belshazzar? Lifting up the cup when it should be worship of God and saying, no, it's for me. And so I say this to you college students who are towing the line, claiming Christianity, and yet finding yourself in compromising situations where you're You're not doing this whatsoever, but because maybe it's with others, it feels better to succumb. I just want to implore you, represent the gospel. The opportunity that we have in the freedom of Christ is to not look like this guy. That's the chance we have. Living for more, breathing for more, loving for more. We have that opportunity. For those of you in here, married, with children, young singles, as culture sets up this whole thing about how we can, in America, still participate with great amounts of alcohol and still kind of, you know, be seen in this Christian culture, I want to challenge you and encourage you. If it's worship done with great discernment and of legal age, then participate, not with loose liberty, but with the liberty of the scriptures. But if it's not worship, we don't do it, period. Anything. Nothing. I don't watch TV. I don't go to the store. I don't do anything unless it's worship. You're saying, Mark, how can anyone live like that? That's the gospel. The very nature of the gospel is because he did it, now we follow suit because he's empowering us to follow him. You see what I'm saying? So when Belshazzar lifts the cup and does this blasphemous thing, what he does is he goes toe-to-toe. He doesn't fear his past, and he definitely doesn't fear the present. Well, what do you mean, Mark? Check this out. All right? The Persians, have you ever heard of them? Pretty a substantial army, okay? Just before all of this party happens, they have taken out Nebuchadnezzar. And they're coming up from the south, and listen to this. Belshazzar knows when he throws this party that around the city walls is the Medes and the Persians. They're there at Babylon, ready to take the whole thing down. But, but, Belshazzar in his extreme arrogance, and we can understand a little bit because you remember, Babylon, 15 square miles, two city walls, stood 350 foot tall, 85 foot deep. You would think that's pretty impenetrable. Nice, I think I hit that, right? Impenetrable, right? On top of that, they could fit four chariots, four wide, on top of those walls. So as he throws this party, do you understand? All of these people 
this whole army is sitting outside the city walls. What he doesn't anticipate them doing is building a dam, causing the water to drop in the Euphrates River that goes right in between Babylon and them waiting underneath the, uh, them waiting underneath the gate. He didn't expect that. We'll talk about more of that next time, right? So here he sits, fearing not of his past. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I know you challenged God, but, and I saw how that worked out for you. You became a beast for seven years. I haven't learned from my past, and I'm definitely not fearing of the present. All these people are around, so I'm going toe-to-toe with you, God. Things get really interesting. Verse 5, I'm so, oh my goodness. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared. Okay. All right, um. So he calls for the vessels. Listen to this. I've already described the room, 190 foot. He calls for, uh, for the vessels to come in. They begin to drink. And I told you, his seat is up at the top, okay, of this room. You picture, he looks to his left or to his right, and there appears, not a human body, my friends, a human hand, right? Compl- like not attached to a limb, Right? So some may say, okay, Mark, uh, you know, I've, I've been incapacitated before. My judgment has been completely impaired by the source of alcohol, and I too have seen hands. Okay, so be it, right? <laughs> so be it. Listen, right? Because of the amount of people, and Herodias writes this, uh, an ancient uh, historian of Babylonian culture confirms that this was not just a drunken stupor image. This is a real thing. So immediately when this happens, again, listen, do you understand how much grace and mercy God had on Nebuchadnezzar? I'm going to tell you right now, not so with Belshazzar. Not so. Immediately this hand shows up and look what happens. And the hand begins to write. So it doesn't just show up. It starts to write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, which is significant because what does that mean? Everyone can see it. So you got a thousand people in the room. I mean, just grotesque, perverted party, a hand shows up and begins to write. Now, as you can understand, this is a highly contested piece by biblical scholars about the scripture, right? Like, come on, seriously? Like, Daniel is just filled with all these crazy stories in the fiery furnace. No way, Daniel's lines then next week. Like, no, like, of course, like, real true stuff. Look at this, unbelievable and the king saw the hand as it wrote, and as you would do as well, verse 6, the king's color changed, right? And, uh, and his thoughts alarmed him. I love the way the uh, scripture phrases this. His limbs gave way, and his knees locked together, okay? So you're the king of the modern world. You're number two in command. You see this hand, and not because of the alcohol at this point, but because of seeing a human hand detached from a limb... He changes colors. His knees get weak. What I love this is this, and I'll make this statement over and over and over. All right? Humans, us, under the power of God, the only response to that great power of God is this response. It's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar did. Right? He eventually kind of learned display of God's power, display of God's power. In this moment, God shows up in the form of a human hand, begins to write, and his instant response is like, though I'm the king and have all this gold and have just threw a party for a thousand people, which had to cost a small mortgage, right? Like, I'm here, and all of a sudden, listen, I'm made nothing. Do you see? God's power makes little of you and I. 
and makes much of him, you see. And in this moment, this is happening. So what does he do? The king called loudly, as you would, and I love the description, all right? So he just starts belting out commands to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Again, he hasn't learned from his past. Nebuchadnezzar tried this too, right? Times of great tension. He calls the wise men. Shouldn't have done it. They haven't produced in the past. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, which means what? So apparently the hand isn't up there just doing an Etch-a-Sketch, right? Any Etch-a-Sketch fans here? Right? Okay. Yeah, three of you. It's a brilliant toy. Bring it back, please, right? The hand isn't up there just writing on an Etch-a-Sketch, you know? But it's, it's writing out words, apparently. Look, just pause for a moment. Can you even picture this? Can you even imagine this scene? Imagine, like, right here, right now, a big hand appeared right here, right? And just started literally jotting things down, right? Like, we would think, like, you know, next week there would be 8,000 people here, right? People would be like, come to the freak show. This is going to be awesome, right? Now, look at this. Look at this. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with what? What's the color? Purple. And have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Why third? Nebuchadnezzar is first. Belshazzar is second. He's saying you'll be third in command. He doesn't know that Nebuchadnezzar has already been taken out. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar are, are both killed in the same juncture a few days later than this. All right? We'll see that actually at the end of the story. It'll be great. I don't mean that in a murderous way, but you'll see, you'll see right? But they're, they're taken out. And he says, look, whoever, whoever can, can, can completely interpret this, you will literally become third in command. Then he says this. Then all the king's wise men, verse 8, came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And I love the intentionality of the word here. Now it's not just the king that's perplexed. Now everyone, we get the picture, everyone now who has great human wealth is being perplexed by all the scene that's taken place. He had some encouragement when he brings in the wise men. Maybe these guys will be able to take Maybe these guys will be able to interpret. But now his color changes again. He's going downhill quickly. And I want to take a moment and say this. How many of you find that some of the greatest things you struggle with were the sins of your parents? Did you ever grow up looking at your parents and thinking to yourself, I'll never do that? Right? Have you ever grown up I've talked about this before about my father. Love my dad. He's a businessman. He's very tall. Wish I would have got more of his height. Thanks, Mom, who's like 3'8". One of the things that my father was very good at is he was a great handyman. Excellent handyman. Um, The problem was my dad um, didn't, didn't try to make me a good handyman. Okay? I would try. He would say, hey, son, come here. Let's, I'm going to show you how to build the deck. Oh, sweet. This will be awesome, right? And so I would grab, like, my screwdriver, thinking that that would be the necessary tool, right? And so he's, he looks at me, and I've got a screwdriver, and he's getting, you know, he's got, like, a saw, and all, you know. So son, what are you going to do with that? I'm not sure. You, just, you know, you said come build a deck, so this is the tool I had, you know. But over and over, like, my dad never gave me opportunities. I would try, and then he would just say, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it myself. And, and I don't necessarily blame him because, you know, sometimes time is of the essence, and you've got to get a job done. But I grew up thinking to myself, like, I'll always give my kids a chance to learn on the job, right? So a couple nights ago, 
me and Avery are uh, sitting there, and uh, we're working on a project, and um, we're, we're teaching each other how to type, okay? And I'm showing her how to send an email, right? And the email is going to be, it's to me, from her, and it says, I love you, Daddy. And uh, so we're starting to work on this, and she's starting to type away. And after about three seconds, I find myself impatient, you know? I'm like, all right, the first letter's H. And she's like, where's the H again, Dad? You know, and she's like looking around, you know, and she scours them, you know, and she's going back. Anyway, I find myself, by the time we get to Daddy, I just type it out real quick and hit send, you know? I was like, you, you did great, Avery. And I, and I found myself in that moment doing the exact same thing with my little girl that I always said I would never do. Not teaching her, taking the opportunity away. Do you find that the same about you? Some of the same things that you said that you would never do that your mom and dad poured into you. Right? This is Belshazzar. Right? He, he's the kid that the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar has been passed down and the pride of Nebuchadnezzar is clearly seen and he hasn't learned his lesson. And so here he is, color changed, weak knees, and let's finish up here in verse 10. The queen shows up. Now this is, this is pretty sweet because so far it's been pretty male-dominated Daniel, Okay? This book has been mostly males. In fact, I can't even think of a female yet that's shown up. Here, you know, come on, females, right? Like, we got the queen showing up, right? So a lot of questions here. Well, who's the queen? Well, by all intents and purposes, and not to get too fairy tale on you, but this is the queen mother, okay? Uh, in other words, this is probably Bel- uh, Belshazzar's mom, which is pretty, a pretty humbling moment, right? Things are getting so intense, in comes mom to save the day, right? You're the king of the modern world, and yet you're still under mommy's hand, right? Don't you love the power of a mom? Come on. I love my mom. I love moms. I love, you know, this is the power of the mom. The queen comes in. Check this out. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, and she knows that the king can still kill her. She says, oh, king, live forever. And I feel like that's just, you know, oh, king, live forever. All right, let's move on, right? Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Apparently the color change is visible. Verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the, the spirit of the holy gods. Could you put up the, the last uh, king slide for me, Andrew, again, real quick? What, that listed out all the kings. There we go. Okay. 539. 605 is where we began this. Nebuchadnezzar died in what? What year did I say? 562. Do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar looked at Daniel and said, the spirit of the gods is in you? 23 years later, guess what they're still saying about the 80-year-old Daniel? The queen mother, no less. There is this man who the spirit of the holy gods is in. Not just a follower of God, but literally the spirit of a holy God. So here's what she says. There's a man. In the days of your father, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, she reiterates it, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in what? This what? Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. She says, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. How many times has this happened now? And don't you love this? Where is Daniel? Not in the room. He's not in the party. 
This is the third time we've seen this. They're always having to call Daniel. Because he's always off doing something that they're not doing. Which is really encouraging, isn't it? Where's Daniel? I don't know, but we need him here. Go get him. He's not in here. Okay, let's send for him. Listen. Of all the passages so far in Daniel, and I know it seems strange, this passage has affected me more than any other. Let me explain. I'm sitting back from all this, and I'm looking at Belshazzar. He fears not his present. The Persians and the Medes are all around, getting ready to take over the city. He fears not his past, learns nothing from Nebuchadnezzar, learns nothing of his pride because of of this phenomenal statement. Anyone who walks in pride, God is able to humble. He doesn't learn from that. This is a dude that only gets fearful at what? At a hand that's off of a human limb that's beginning to write. He fears himself and himself alone. And the only moment he begins to sit back in humility is when something crazy and unbelievable happens. I've sat back from that and I've had to ask myself a lot of intense questions that all began with the same verse that I said to you earlier. If it's worship, then we'll do it. If it glorifies God, then we'll participate in it. The difference between Daniel and Belshazzar is Daniel continually shows he fears God and not man and not himself. Nebuchadnezzar didn't, Belshazzar didn't, the Babylonians haven't, but Daniel does. He fears God. So all of that got my mind working. And listen, I've always misunderstood this verse, but finally I feel like tonight... Something has changed. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Look at this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever heard that verse before? Have you ever been tripped up by that verse before? I know I have. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Anytime you put work and salvation together, things get interesting, doesn't it? Because it kind of puts you on your heels. You're like, okay, so, so somehow our salvation and work coincide. Now look at this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I feel like much of my ministry, I've been trying to explain to people that verse. And I don't feel like I've understood it until right now, hopefully by the grace of God. Belshazzar feels, fears only himself, doesn't fear the present, doesn't feel the past, doesn't fear anything. And yet this scripture says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When you hold the cup... filled with the potential for indulgence in sin. The working out our salvation with fear and trembling is that in that moment, if it's not worship, it looses. It's gone. And in that moment, you fear God more than anything that this or that this or that that could ever provide. And so what begins to happen is it's being worked out in you because you find yourself 
literally daily respecting God so much so that your only response then can be obedience for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. I must obey. I have to worship. And it's in that moment that true believers will reveal themselves Not because they're the ones indulging and giving in to the sins of the culture, but because they are fearing, respecting, awing God. And that salvation that God breathed in them, listen, is showing itself evident. That's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. My salvation reveals itself. Because in the moments of obey or not, I fear, respect Awe, God. Belshazzar doesn't. And in the end of this story, he will die. And I'm here to say, if you desire to feed your lips, your ears, your eyes, your body with the indulgences of this culture, and you desire to serve the God of America, and you desire to follow the king's of this culture, then you too will die. But, because of the cross of Christ, the blood of grace and mercy dripped down from that cross, and the beautiful fear of God, you, through Christ, can have life. And so you become the one in an indulging culture that has the chance to say, through the working out, of salvation with fear and trembling, I'm alive. I do not need that to live. All I need is the cross of Christ, the Spirit of God living in me so that every decision I'm desiring to Him, to give Him good pleasure. God, I want to worship you. I don't want to worship anything else. That's working out your salvation with fear and trembling, church. How much do you fear God? Listen, do you respect Him enough to obey? Listen, not legalism. Or not loose liberty. The freedom of Christ. Says. You. Can live. In fear and trembling. And your salvation. Being worked out. Stand with me. Stand with me.